Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And after we first listened to the uh, continuation of the Terrence McKenna workshop that I've been, well, I've been playing it for the past several weeks. Anyway, after that, I've got a few announcements that I think you might be interested in. But first, we've uh, got a talk to listen to. And uh, before that, I want to pass along my sincere thanks to some of our fellow saloners who have made donations during this past week. And these kind souls are Gary M., Ryan J., and a generous donation from Swan and Bewill. And I thank you all for your continuing support of the salon, uh, both now and uh, once we move to our 2.0 version next spring. Now, uh, since this series of McKenna talks that I've been playing lately hasn't uh, appeared elsewhere on the net, at least as far as I can tell, I haven't cut anything out. In fact, uh, even when the comments of others in the room weren't very clear, I amplified them as best as I could so that uh, we could keep these recordings intact. And uh, from time to time, you'll hear Terrence say something, then there's going to be a slight gap, and then he'll start speaking again, but uh, only with a few words left out. However, uh, that isn't my doing. What, uh, what happened at those points is that the tape obviously ran out and had to be turned over to continue recording. But those instances are few and uh, don't really seriously impact the overall flow of Terrence's raps. So uh, here now is part four of an August 1997 Terrence McKenna workshop, which he titled Our Cyber Spiritual Future. LSD does all kinds of strange things to your mind and perception, but it is somewhat reluctant to produce what I call true hallucinations. It will do that if you smoke a lot of cannabis on top of it or lace a little mescaline on top of it. But pure LSD is somewhat reluctant to, to do what I'm after. And what I'm after are visions. These unfolding, visually beheld, incredibly complex, beautiful, meaning-laden scenarios. Uh, I didn't feel satisfaction in my pursuit of that till I got to psilocybin. So that's why I do it at night. And yeah, I, I mentioned music. Me. Music, good point. And again, I take a harder line than most people. Uh, I listen to music on ayahuasca, especially because often it's being generated by human beings, and because ayahuasca has a tradition of music being visibly beheld. But when I take psilocybin or anything else like that, I don't play music because it's complete sensory overload. Uh, it absolutely dominates the experience. Now, if I were to take mushrooms and at the two-hour mark, nothing whatsoever has happened, I might put on some music to try and coax it out of the woodwork. But at the two-hour mark, it should already be raging Something has happened. Either you're full of food or the dose went off or 
something. So I, I find, see, what I'm interested in is the thing in itself, the ding on sisha of it. What is it without music, without nature, without input from other people? What is it in silent darkness? And people say, well, especially people who've meditated say, well, that sounds hideously boring. Not at all, my friend. You will have your hands so full in absolutely silent darkness if it turns, if it works, that one iota more of input would be unbearable. So I tend to advise against music. Also, know your music. I have had experiences where my goal in life became to survive to the end of the cut. You know, music is a magical art. And, you know, you just drop something on the turntable and God knows who, what the motivation of this was. Yeah. Ego infused in that and sort of trying to persuade you in some way to... uh it's definitely insidious. Well, and the art of music is to work on emotional modes. And here, so here's a guy who wrote a piece of music, and his intent was for it to emotionally take people to pieces. Well, maybe you didn't know that was his intent, but you drop it on the turntable. Well, now that's the advantage of a companion, though, because if you're under it. You don't want to be changing CDs. <laughs> no, if you're going to listen to music, you definitely need somebody to run the machinery, I think. Yeah. Barry? Um, well, the other thing with music, it, mm-hmm. on, on the other side of it, music tends to, uh, maybe just because I came, grew, grew up in the 60s, but it, it brings back memories of the past. And, uh, you know, there's associations, there's emotional entanglements, associations. And you're there again. You know, you may not want to be in the past. You may want to be free of those kinds of associations. That's one of the problems I've found. The other, yeah. The other thing is that um, I was talking to a friend of mine who wants to purge a tape, and uh, a newfound friend that said that they, they wanted to try the mushroom. But uh, she said that, and, and I've heard this before from people on the radio, that um, uh, they don't like... They think it's going to be like LSD, and they don't want to go inside and go through all this introspection where kind of LSD has that psychoanalytic edge to it, and go into their heads, and get, and, and especially if they may be, you know, in a depression or things are not going well, they don't want to take it, and they feel like they have to be sort of... Uh, uh, liberated from all their problems before they can take it because they don't want to get into any dark, deep places. It, when you say you're after hallucinations, is it more external and it doesn't matter what your psychic state is inside? No, we, we've dealt with setting. Now let's move, yeah, following your question, to yeah, set. No, that is the question. What should you be like yeah. before you take it? And again, opinions differ. Uh, in, in my opinion, you should be in a state of reasonable psychic equilibrium. You should... Uh, I know, it ain't easy. It's, uh, it's, you know, how many seconds a year are you, do you qualify? <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, uh, like for instance, I would never 
take it in the middle of some incredible emotional upheaval with my partner or something like that because it's just crazy making. So you sort of have to have things a little calm down. And then what I always do, and this is just my preference, and I don't, just my preference, is I always throw the ching. And I, because it's saying, okay, I think I'm ready. I think the set is okay. I think the setting is okay. Now let's get some input. And the ching... A, a very a surprising number of times I've thrown the the uh, hexagram, I can't remember which one it is, That's it's the only one that says, inquire again of the oracle if you possess constancy and some, something else. Uh, so in other words, if it's, if it's in, if the indicate, if the auguries are negative, I don't proceed with it. Um, uh, then another issue we haven't dealt with, sort of back on the other side, is inside or outside. And people say to me, you don't, you don't do it outside, you don't do it in nature. Well, you know, at the quantum mechanical level, uh, there's even nature inside my apartment. Uh, nature is everywhere. It's space, time, and energy. It would be nice, I agree, and I, I, it, I, when I take it in nature, I take lower doses for two reasons. First of all, I'm going to work largely with my eyes open. I'm going to be looking at things. A nature trip is a looking at things trip. And the other reason I take low doses in nature is because sure as hell some wild hair thing is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you're going to be taken prisoner by naked people or <laughs> a ranger is going to ride up and demand what is going on or just the crazy things that go on. Unless you happen to own several hundred acres of nature that's well patrolled and then you can maybe have some confidence you won't be bothered. Uh, I, I know somebody who took LSD and uh, was in nature somewhere in the hunt country of Virginia and found themselves being booted off the property by Jackie O. I couldn't have stood that myself. So, uh, you know... Uh, And so I do it inside. And then the other thing I do, and again, it's just years of experience, but my preference and relates to my other drug habits, is uh, I always have cannabis and ready, rolled and ready. And uh, it's navigational aids. If, If the... I use it in two situations. If the, if the state is reluctant to appear, usually a large hit or two of, of cannabis will carry it through. Or if you get into some place that you, is completely intolerable, you can do a number of things to shift your physiological equilibrium, but the least obtrusive and disruptive is to just smoke cannabis. 
And then the third application of cannabis in that situation is if you have come over the peak and are started down and you still want to stay up there, cannabis will usually somewhat extend uh, the situation. So again, what would you say to people who say, uh, LSD drives me crazy? I go through these incredible moral dilemmas and say, don't take it. Yeah, don't take it. I'm tearing my psyche out with my fingernails. And I don't want that. I want the hallucinogen. You know, I don't want to have to go inside like that. I want. No, I think I think LSD is abrasively psychoanalytic. So, mushroom DMT could be more outer directed to hallucination. No, it seems like this to me that. Somehow LSD talks about who you are, and uh, and maybe that's good and maybe that's bad. Psilocybin doesn't care who you are. It has a message. It will deliver to any human being who shows up with their hand out, and it's it doesn't care who you are. So it and and DMT. It's so brief. The idea of formulating and dealing with a personal dilemma in DMT, it would have to be some really overwhelming uh, dilemma because it's just saying, you know, no, look at the view. You know, this is about the Grand Canyon, not the tourist who's visiting the Grand Canyon. There's another aspect of that I find almost every time I do it, I get incredibly telepathic. I start having community. I start having conversations or if they are physically there you can hear them in your mind and then it's almost like an, there have been times when it's um, well, it feels like we're on the same energy wave and, and we're both lighting it simultaneously yeah all of these things go on uh, and you know simple rules that should be obvious like don't you know, clean your apartment before you get loaded. I mean, it, it's a symbolic gesture. Uh, <laughs> oh, for cleaning it? Well, take them, clean it, come down, then trip. I don't mean clean it while you're loaded. No, no. That would be... That would be. Yeah, if you smoke marijuana, like you say, as a, a Buddhist, you're going to want to clean and you'll, you'll end up remodeling the whole house <laughs> before the day's over. Well, it may be the only creative thing you've done that month. So, uh, basically, I think you can tell from this conversation, it's something you learn your way into. It's very complicated. You have many drugs, many sets, many settings, many dosages, conceivably even some combinations, although I'm not big on combinations. I'm going to say that um, alcohol is not a very good ally with psychedelic substances in my eyes. I mean, people do that, in, but, you know, yeah, later I, coming down at the end of the trip having a beer or something, or, you know, light alcohol is a different thing, but people, they get drunk and basically... Yeah, I would never do that. ...twisted, uncomfortable situation. What about homo uh, That's a controversial thing. A number of people do it. Uh, one of the hardest evenings I ever spent was that combination. 
and I will never do that again, but I haven't been able to line up too much support. The question is, what about combining uh, Pagamon harmala with mushrooms, with Stropheric cubensis? Now, what happened to me was I took uh, uh, half a dose of mushrooms, which for me would be two and a half grams. I took two and a half grams of mushrooms with half a dose of ayahuasca. And it was, uh, it was um, seemed crazy-making to me. Very, very, very unpleasant state. I was, I think what was happening as I analyzed it later was that short-term memory absolutely would not transcript. And so I got into this strange loop which went like this. Something's wrong. What's wrong? (laughs) Nothing's wrong. Okay. Something's wrong. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. Okay. And it and it was it was serious, and it went on for about an hour, and I I just did not know what to do. I I had the image from 2001 of the guy outside the ship saying, "Open the pod doors, Hal." Saying, "I can't do that, Dave." <laughs> Open the pod doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. And I, it, it really seemed to me I could almost see an enzymatic, I almost had like a nano-engineer's view of the problem. I could see at the synaptic level that the molecular machinery was lodged in some peculiar configuration. And, and, I, just, and I, just, I was broke into a sweat and I, and I just said, okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to sit here till this goes away. I'm not going to start screaming. I'm not going to call for help. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to wait until this goes away. And then I started deep breathing as a strategy for metabolizing. And after 45 minutes or so, it kind of jiggled loose. And then it was like, ah, huh. Oh, wow, what a bummer that was. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's like. It's a nightmare, Kathleen. I think that mixing is an effort to force a certain kind of content that we get addicted to. And I've come to believe that visions and the content are not as important as how the neocortex is touched uh, neurochemically. And that the way that's touched, I can carry that into my everyday life and that's more important to me than a certain experience set in in a certain time frame. Yeah, although I think the the experience is the signifier of that state that you're talking about. I mean, you do want to come out of it with a sense of relief and accomplishment. I mean, it's sort of like orgasm. You know, there's there's there ha- there must be release of some sort and a sense of 
we did well. We came through. We learned something. We're back. We're ready to go forward with ordinary life. We won't forget. We affirm. We we praise and offer thanksgiving. That that kind of thing. To, who? to the universe in all its diversity and and uh, and complexity that such a confluence of fortuitous elements could occur, that such a synergy to higher consciousness could even be possible. You know, Aldous Huxley called the psychedelic experience, he called it a gratuitous grace. He said it is neither necessary nor sufficient for salvation. Neither necessary nor sufficient but it certainly makes it easier. So it's like a gift. It's like the universe is, uh, is giving you 20 points at the beginning of the game just to help you along. If that's too highfalutin, then you just praise Bugs Bunny and Patrick Swayze. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the reason I ask, you, you, uh, you mentioned 2001 and Arthur C. Clarke completed 3001 about six months ago and and I bought it and it's kind of he writes extremely dull but the, the, he indicates that by 3001 man has come the understanding that any thoughts of a creator was just superstition and I found that very refreshing because that's how I thought for a long time that's why a I creator yeah well, you know, I don't... The universe is its own creator. I mean, the universe is some kind of auto-poetic... Oh, like it's an auto-poetic process. Uh, if there is a goal in the universe, it's built into every move it makes. I don't see an intellect outside of space and time guiding things and certainly not watching with bated breath the machinations of the human monkeys I mean nobody has time for that kind of thing uh, so uh, the universe is a, is a self-creating mystery of some sort not and mystery should not be heard as unsolved problem it's not an unsolved problem it's a mystery it's completely ever renewing itself uh, right in front of you life teaches this if you're paying attention psychedelics almost rub your nose in it uh, yeah Terrence I wanted to talk a little bit about the relationship between the, the psychedelic state at hallucination and rationality because you, you say you're, you're a rationalist this is an interesting question for me especially in terms of bringing, as you said before, the object is to bring something back. Well, you can have the visions, but if you're going to bring it back, then you have to go through some sort of thought process that is closer to left brain thinking. I'm sorry, right brain. Yeah, left brain thinking uh, than the full-blown you know, consciousness you mean you have state. to reduce so, it to its elements. Yeah, so um, you, when you say you're a rationalist, it, it's, 
it's an odd kind of rationality. I wonder if you could talk about that because I, I think I see what you mean, but your rationality, uh, your reason, is more like a supercharged uh, thought process that's the, 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 the syntax of, of, of its logic is closer to poesis and a poetic process like Plato would have his kind of thoughts than it is you know. so would you talk about the relationship where rationality kicks in and what, what that's all about well when I say I'm a rationalist I mean that I, I guess I trust but verify Everything is to be tested. Nothing is to be taken at face value. Certainly nothing is to be believed in. Uh, the reason I even found psychedelics was because I was following rumors of a, of a effective force for spiritual breakthrough. And when I followed it to its source there was spiritual breakthrough. At other times, I followed other rumors of spiritual breakthrough, and when I got to the source, I found a public relations agent and a con artist or something like that. Uh, r reason is simply the desire that things uh, have some kind of local logic adhering to them. I mean, if the universe is not rational, it's also not discussable. And, you know, maybe the universe isn't rational, but in that case, this discussion and all others have been completely superfluous. Uh, reason is not to be confused with scientific method. Scientific method is a very locally generated cultural artifact with the very limited intent but reason is the idea uh, that uh, A is not B here is not there now of course you can say well these ki this kind of reason breaks down in quantum physics yes but then there's much dancing around the campfire about that and still somehow reason remains a player even in the presence of non-reason, because it's measured back against the standard of reason. When you're in this full-blown experience, is there some element, however vestigial, present, or is it just totally gone? And then how do you translate from that non-speakable state to being a scholar, being able to communicate it rationally? Where... <clears throat> well, I think you have to have a you have to have a lot of metaphors gathered on this side of the frontier. <laughs> In other words, someone who's never been anywhere, never read anything, never done anything, is going to have a much harder time with DMT than someone who can command the complete canon of Western art, can refer to certain mathematical objects, knows certain musical forms, is familiar with structural linguistics, has a working knowledge of geology. In other words, your, your intellectual toolkit needs to be full of adjectives, metaphors, models, and possibilities. And then you can say of DMT, well, it was like the Sistine Chapel 
alter, except that instead of the kind of light you get in Caravaggio or somebody like that, there was a kind of, oh, you know, the sort of thing Matthias Gruenwald is doing in his resurrection, where he, and, well, if somebody doesn't know what any of this is, they're having a kind of DMT experience of their own just listening to you. Because they say, what what did he say? What does he say? What? What? But if you know what you mean and speak precisely, I mean, all these words have meaning. You know, Sistine Chapel altar, light like Caravaggio, modified as the way Gruenwald did it, and uh, uh, so forth and so on. So somehow by... uh, and it was, it's still an incredible flattening. I don't mean that this is an adequate tool. I mean it's a tool. I am perfectly aware that the most high-flown and hysteria-provoking descriptions of DMT I've ever been able to summon up in front of a group were complete betrayals of the real thing. So, so, so not what it was that the word lie is almost applicable. But it was the best, it's the best I can do. And that's why I have said this morning, you know, this idea of building the internet as a net for capturing the alien mind. If we go into the internet and I build the weirdest and most mind-boggling virtual reality I can imagine and then turn it over to you and you come in and add your filigrees, adumbrations, cupolas and what have you and then we hand it over to you and you do the same. By now this thing has gotten pretty weird just this intensification of weirdness, slowly we can build up an image of it. But I don't think a single person could possibly have the breadth and depth of experience to do it alone. I mean, maybe a Thomas Pynchon or or someone like that. But um, we're involved in a communication struggle here. We're trying to describe the unspeakable. We're trying to, to literally move the boundaries of what can be said and what can't be said. We're trying to push the frontiers of what can be said deeper into the domain of the unspeakable. And are we succeeding or failing? Well, that's for each one of us uh, to judge. Uh, I know every time I smoke DMT, the first emotion I have as it fully establish it, as it fully establishes itself in my sensorium is that I have the sense of remembering what it really is and having this f- sort of guilt slash embarrassment about realizing how hideously unfaithful I am to the truth of it. This truth can't be told, or at least not by me. I've been trying for 20 years. And I have created an object in discourse that fascinates people. But is it DMT? No, it's, it's me doing the best I can 
uh, with DMT. but I have the faith that this is not an um, intrinsic quality of it. It's not in principle beyond description. It's that doing it by bursting in on it, looking around, then coming down, then raving about it is, is a very difficult method, you know. Uh, a better method would be to... Uh, incrementally, piece by piece, try to build a model that you could go back to in various states of mind. I mean, for instance, here's a frontier no one has crossed yet. Let's build a the best model of the DMT flash we can build, then let's smoke DMT inside that model and uh, conduct a review of how we're doing. Uh, by such methods as this, we will sooner or later push the thing into greater and greater, uh, into the light where we can see it. Have you been able to take more back from your psilocybin experiences simply because you could stay there longer? And you've been able to take back from the DMT experience, although the DMT experience was like the compass that really showed you this is where it's at. Not only was I able to stay longer, but the state itself is easier to describe. It has elements of the DMT flash, but certain of the harder elements to describe aren't present. Uh, For example, on psilocybin, you hear a voice, or I hear a teaching voice. On DMT, I see who makes that voice. Well, now a voice is... Yes, same voice. The voice is not hard to get used to. It's saying astonishing things, but that's all. It's just saying astonishing things, but it's speaking in English, and it is a voice. When you encounter the speaker as an image... You can't even think about what's being said because your jaw hangs in air in the presence of who is saying it. And you basically say, you know, I don't want to hear what you're saying. I I want to look at you. You're saying you don't really get all the way there or as far as you can go unless you do DMT. Just, it, it seems that there is some kind of synaptic saturation happening there or something like that. Yeah, I... I have heard, and I have no reason to believe it, that if you... I've never overdosed on mushrooms or felt that I've overdosed. I've taken some enormous unweighted, unweighed batches, but I've never felt that I had overdosed. But people have described to me uh, what goes on above 35 milligrams of chemical psilocybin. And basically what people say is the hallucinations condense and freeze. And that's that's sounding very DMT-like. Indeed, I would suppose, and strange that we have no reports of this in the literature, I have no idea why not, but it would seem to me one could smoke psilocybin. It's not pyrolyzed. It would work. If you had chemical psilocybin and you smoked 35 milligrams of it, 
I'll bet you it would be very, very, very much like DMT. Uh, and why should DMT present this benchmark? I don't know. I suppose it's simply here we have a series of compounds which elicit different effects. There's going to be one that in the nature of things will be inclusive, and this is it. Now, the salvinorine raises different issues. On one level, almost theological issues. You know, is this town big enough for two forms of weirdness that are apparently not the same? In other words, it took me a long time to get used to the idea that there could be one exception to the onrushing momentum of reality. The idea that alpha salvinorine is a second dispensation from reality raises the question, three, four, fifty, five hundred, ten thousand? Maybe reality is a far more perishable concept than we ever dared or feared to suppose. Uh, uh, I had never done it before and I was at actually I was at Timothy Leary's house and the lilies that the dolphin guy mm. the assistant was there and he had some and I thought they were snorting coke which I thought was kind of crappy and uh, they go no it's ketamine do you want to try some and I, I go okay and um, they wished they had coke <laughs> <laughs> What happened is I separated uh, from my body, and I was like over here, and my body was here. Uh, but somebody came up to me who I who I only met once, and started making conversation with my body. And I over here watched my, but I over here was in possession of my mind, I, you know, calmly thought, process, da, da, da. but I with my mind over here watched my body go through this whole rigmarole with this person and make uh, social conversation. Hello, how are you? Why certainly? Also, and, and I watched myself and I couldn't for the life of me figure out how, because I knew I had my brain over here. So the brain that was playing the game over here was like something else. But yet it was uh, uh, my... Uh, uh, facial muscles were smiling when it was appropriate to smile. My my whole my physical body did everything exactly as it was supposed to, but yet I wasn't participating one dot and didn't have any interest in participating. And uh, I don't know that was just so interesting to me because my mind was definitely not running that show, the physical show. Well, I think that's why they call it a disassociative anesthetic. I mean, it does disassociate. You literally are beside yourself. <laughs> you can't get much more disassociated than that. Yeah. Have you ever yourself Oh, yeah. I did the early on, did all that. See, I thought I had... I pursued this glossolalia that is induced by by DMT, and I, I thought that if I I could hear it 
for years before I could physically articulate it. And I thought that this glossolalia had some kind of magical property and that if I could articulate it in the world, something definitive would occur or people would become interested in it or not. And uh, it's that uh, at on DMT, some people, and I'm one of them, speak in strange languages spontaneously, can't, they don't even, in some cases, know they're doing it. They just seem to fall into this. And uh, it's ecstatic to do. For some reason, this is just an incredibly, it's what you want to do. It seems to be the obvious thing to do, to speak in this peculiar way. Uh, and at first I heard it for years, moving so fast, just, it was like, I called it elf chatter. And then, I don't know why, diligent prayer or something was able to slow it down, and I found I could do it. And I went out to Hawaii years ago and took a voice-activated tape recorder, and I spent a week, I took eight grams of mushrooms every night, uh, nearly every night for a week, and made these recordings. And what I came down with were these recordings which people find extremely alarming to listen to. Uh, it, they hear it and they just are convinced. They're not like, it's not like, well, it just makes people think you're crazy. They just say, you know, okay, so you were sitting in a tent halfway up a mountain all by yourself and what you chose to do was shriek in Norstratic for some reason. Um, now, I, I still think that that the secret of the of the psychedelics or the point of all this has to do with the language. That, first of all, language, ordinary language, as we are using it here, is a very bizarre behavioral pattern. I mean, when you deconstruct it and think about it, first of all, just notice other animals don't do this. Dolphins, honeybees aside, they don't do what we do. There are no Miltons among the honeybees, I think. Uh, so what's happening is we have thoughts. We want to share these thoughts. We have evolved a system where the thoughts are transduced into mouth noises, small mouth noises, which are conventionally assigned meaning. In other words, with inside the context of a culture, book means book in English. Book does not mean this in some other language. It may mean something else. Uh, food, sex, or death. Uh, we assign... Uh, sound signatures to meaning, we then make these sounds with our mouths, a pressure wave moves acoustically through the air, it enters the ear of the intended uh, listener, the listener also has a dictionary acquired through cultural convention, the incoming acoustical signals are downloaded, the dictionary is looking them up, if the dictionaries match, then 
we say understanding is taking place. No two dictionaries are exact. And in fact, one of the uncoolest things you can do in most social situations is to say to someone, would you explain to me what I just said? It usually brings the party to a screeching halt <laughs> because the world is really running on, yeah, uh-huh, mm-hmm, oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, and when you break that illusion of grunts and say, no, no, I just said something quite complicated, would you please iterate it for me with fidelity? Most people can't do this at all. So we have a problem. We possess language. We've built a world out of language. But our language is, it's like using 300 baud modems to try and run an internet or something. It's so squeezed that we can barely get anything across. Well, then you go into the DMT space and... uh, Here is language which you don't listen to, but which you see. The DMT creatures generate topologies, colored, moving, self-transforming surfaces that are laden, God knows how, with meaning. Not conventional meaning, because conventional language can carry conventional meaning. But these colored modalities are like a hyper-dimensional language, or what I call a visible language. And, you know, uh, when we talk about language, we say things like, I see what you mean, or he told a really colorful story, or he's, she's such a colorful speaker. In other words, we reach for visual metaphors to indicate linguistic clarity. And in, and in Spanish, same thing. You say claro means it's clear. Das ist clar. Wouldn't that refer to what the linguistic evokes in the hearing, which may be colorful? Well, somehow we associate understanding with visual definition. Uh, and, And so it seems to me that probably language is an evolutionary process that is only partially complete. And that, uh, and what put me on to this, interestingly, is these songs that are sung in the Amazon on ayahuasca. The the people take ayahuasca, they gather in darkened rooms and huts, then the shamans sing, then they pause for to smoke and take a leak, and then you hear people saying stuff like uh, commenting on the song. I liked the part with the orange stripes and the metallic rippling, but I thought the olive drab and yellow section was just too twee. What kind of a criticism of of a song is this? Uh, it's a criticism of a painting, not a song. And then you realize, aha, the song is a painting. I'm the only one in the room listening to the song. Everyone else in 
want that is born in the acoustical domain but seeks to grow and mature into the domain of the visually beheld. Now, I always thought, perhaps you did too, that telepathy meant uh, you hear what I think. I hear what you think. I, I don't think that's what telepathy is. Telepathy is you see what I mean. You see what I mean. And a great communicator can make you see what they mean. And what's happening is your, your, your evolutionary ability to process language is being brought right to the edge. Well, then this whole thing is running on brain chemistry, serotonergic chemistry, chemistry not that different from the chemistry of the psychedelic experience. You change these brain chemicals around and... Uh, you know, according to McLuhan and other students of communication and media, how we process language is actually not uh, a biologically determined thing. It's a culturally determined thing. We hear speech because we live inside a print-created modality. Before print, people's heads were filled uh, with very different stuff in the act of communicating. And so I don't know how it would work, but I can see we need a special form of communication. Perhaps we can do it with drugs, modified ayahuascas of some sort, or perhaps we can do it with virtual reality. If you think about virtual reality for a moment, it's a very tortuous, low-speed technology but the end result of it is you see what I mean. I go away for six months, animate, you know, texture, embed all this stuff in VRML brackets and everything, and then I say, here's, you know that hallucination I described to you six months ago? Now I'd like to show it to you. Here it is. Now do you see what I mean? And, of course, you see what is meant, because unlike acoustically modulated speech, where there is this necessity for congruent dictionaries, when uh, something has a three-dimensional modality, no dictionary is necessary. In other words, when you and I, if, if you and I, if I read a paragraph from Proust, then we could spend an hour discussing, as you all have in lit class, I'm sure, what did the author mean? We discuss it. But if I show you a sculpture, we see what the author meant. There may be ambiguity, but it's at a different level. The intent of the, of the artist is beheld with perfect Clarity. The intent of the artist was to build this unambiguous object. Words are always clothed in ambiguity because no two people define a word the same way. Where, you know, I have a certain amount of faith that when we look at this thing, you the Jew, you the Christian, you the smart person, you the dumb person, you the Buddhist, we all still see the same glass. But if I were to describe it, 
then, you know, ideology would amalgamate and compromise it. Yeah. What about other types of meaning that aren't conveyable through this kind of a, a language? Because you have, I'm trying to think of something, like I can't really think of a good example other than, like, a woman having some kind of perfume on, and she, she's, that's a meaning that she's wearing that, that scent, or something like this, that, that this other senses, and that's conveying meaning. How do you bring that into this? into uh, this kind of language. Well, we experience other meanings than acoustical in the present world. Uh, you know, works of art which are static. I don't think a visible language will replace all other forms of language, but I certainly think that uh, if perfected, it would become the dominant modality. See, I think that... Uh, language that it, it's hard for us to talk about this issue in English because there's a stupid thing going on in English which is the word language is used interchangeably with speech we should have a vocabulary that always distinguishes whether we are speaking of language the abstract notion of communication or acoustical speech. Language is very, very old in human beings, in nature. Honeybees do it, dolphins do it, birds do it, bees do it, everybody does it. Verbal speech is was invented yesterday by somebody in Africa no less than 40,000 years ago. It's as artificial as the bicycle pump or the espresso machine. It's not part of the animal body. It's not part of the animal heritage. We communicated for a million years without verbal speech. We, we grunted, we groaned, we shook each other, we looked in each other's eyes, uh, we pointed, we danced, we memed, we did all these things. Granted, these are low bandwidth uh, forms of communication. Well, then the evolution of media reached a point where some genius thought of coding, the key concept. He said, you know, I'll make the sound orange, and when I make that sound, you think of the fruit. Now let's try it. Orange picture of fruit appears. Okay, now don't let's not do it for 24 hours. Now we'll try it 24 hours later. Orange, the fruit appears. Say, what an interesting game. And uh, it was simply a game. It, it was, and then once invented, its obvious utility caused it to spread like the growth of the internet. You know, it, first of all, it worked in darkness, speech. And it was a dark world, the Paleolithic, you know. Suddenly people didn't have to go to bed at nighttime. They could talk. They could tell stories. Uh, it also uh, it is the first one-to-many form of media. Politics is born. Speeches can now be given. Uh, and uh, uh, people can, uh, large collective enterprises can, can be undertaken but it's a tool it's a technology perhaps the most successful technology ever put in place i mean what a trick 
You just use your throat muscles and the ambient air and then a lot of coding. There's a huge amount of code behind it. Not only the definitions of all these words, but the syntactical connections, the grammar, all of that uh, makes it work. And with the invention of language, somehow we cross out of the animal mind, the invention of speech, I'm sorry, my own error as I stated, with the invention of speech, then somehow we cross out of the domain of the animal mind and uh, speech accelerates all other forms of cultural change. I mean, it's, it's like supercharging the, the uh, cultural system and it leads instantly in geological time to religion, science, philosophy, and further adumbrations of the communication enterprise, the next great leap being writing and reading. And if you analyze writing and reading, they are not the same thing as speaking, but they are hellaciously complicated behaviors which human beings can be taught to do. And, you know, people say dolphins communicate and dolphins have speech and honeybees and this and that, but no one has been nuts enough to dare to claim that they read and write. Uh, uh, in that domain, we stand preeminent on this planet. Dolphins do not read or write. Uh, uh, and so what is writing? Well, writing is the symbolic downloading of sound into a visible domain. So suddenly... Again, the program of visible language. Writing is an intermediate phase between, you know, <coughs> VR by thought and simple animal uh, uh, or, or primitive human speech. But again, the path forward is clearly by pushing the communication process toward the visible. Once we can write things down, uh, history becomes possible. The database of the, of the species can be expanded beyond the memory capacity of single individuals. And again, an enormous kick in the rear end for progress, variability, so forth and so on. So when you analyze our, the acceleration into history and the technological forces that have driven it, it's always been about accelerating the communication process and making it more visually immediate. And, uh, you know, now with the ability to understand this, uh, we're also potentially able to do something about it by, by uh, actually directing the evolution of communication technology in this direction. Yeah. Can I just get one question before we break? I've always been confused about this. When you say that we can better communicate without language, what about art forms like poetry or, I mean, uh, Shakespeare, where the point is, what it's about, is the words. Uh, and they get to a point where you can say they're words, but they're not words in the same sense as a laundry list is because they're infused with grace. What about... It seems like language can do some things and some things that a picture couldn't do. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think, yes, that art, it, it will be an art. 
you know, it always has been an art, but art flourishes uh, under limitation. I mean, sort of like here, like take black and white photography. Given that it's tremendously limited as a medium, black and white and two-dimensional, still black and white photography can move us to tears, can be as deeply and enriching and communicating as any as any imaginable experience of communication, but only in the hands of a master. Uh, uh, for most of us, I think it's better to move up the ladder of fidelity and bandwidth uh, simply because we need all the help we can get. Uh, well, we blew through two hours at the speed of light. Uh, I hope this was useful to you. We'll get together this evening at 8 o'clock right here, and it will be completely different. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, before I say anything else, uh, I want to let our fellow saloners who have, uh, well, they've been kind of unhappy with me cutting out many of Terence's Saturday night sessions about the time wave. Well, I want them to know that my next podcast is going to pick up right where we just now left off, and I'll be playing his entire Saturday night session. Uh, I haven't heard it yet myself, and it may be a little boring if he spends a lot of time uh, talking about what's on his computer screen. But you're going to get the full recording of what he had to say, and uh, and that will come next week. Now, at the beginning of today's talk, uh, Terrence said that pure LSD, at least in lower doses, didn't produce what he called pure visions. Well, as uh, far as low-dose LSD is concerned, I agree. Even at 500 mics, I didn't have any visions. However, there was this one experience that I had many years ago when I ingested a, well, a somewhat larger dose. It was uh, over a thousand mics. And uh, on that particular dose, (laughs) well, I'm here to tell you that uh, significant visions are uh, most definitely possible. At least they were for me. And uh, what is more, they are below that plus five level because even yet today, I can still recall very much of the detail of the visions that I had that night. And, uh, by the way, they were very benign visions, uh, visions of a fancy dress ball, uh, sort of along the lines of what takes place at one of the big Mardi Gras balls in New Orleans. However, instead of people at the ball, they were all very large beings, uh, human in all respects, except for the fact that their heads were the heads of horses, you know, like the ones you see in a chess game. And it was such a pronounced experience that I can still remember most of it really clearly. But I I found that, uh, well, once was enough for me. And after that, I went back down to the uh, normal 500 mic range. Now, in regards to music, uh, that's one place that I depart from Terrence's opinion. For me, I, well, I find that music definitely enhances a psychedelic experience. But I always provide a wide variety of music, uh, pre-selected and ready to go, so that I can change it uh, whenever the vibe of the experience changes. Now, uh, back in the 50s and 60s, at least uh, with the elders from that time that I got to know, they almost all used music with every experience. 
Interestingly, uh, well, at least to me, when I uh, first did LSD with Myron Stolaroff, he put on the music that he said he usually used, and it was all classical and orchestral. And I have to admit that uh, while that never would have been my first choice, it did create a space that was uh, really quite lovely. Now, after Myron and I uh, became more comfortable with one another, uh, I finally got him to listen to some Pink Floyd during a trip. And while he said that it wasn't something that he would do on his own, he did admit to the beauty of the music in a way that he had never experienced from rock music before. So when it comes to music and psychedelics, uh, well, it seems to me that we should each follow our own instincts uh, without getting hooked into playing the same music every time or just never playing it at all because Terrence said so. I did have to smile, however, uh, (laughs) at the fact uh, that while Terrence avoided music for his psychedelic journeys and uh, he rejected the use of a guide, he nonetheless said he threw the I Ching before his trips. And since I realize that there are a lot of believers in the I Ching among us, I'm not going to add my personal opinion here, but I do sense some inconsistency in Terence's approach to psychedelic voyaging here. Uh, however, you're going to have to be the judge of that for yourself. I realize that uh, today's podcast is running on a bit, and uh, I still have a couple announcements to make, but I just wanted to plant one more little thought here. Do you remember when Terence was talking about us living in a print-based culture and how something visual, like uh, virtual reality, which uh, really was really quite primitive back in 1997, and, uh, well, it still is today in many ways. However, uh, Terence's thoughts about communications between us humans uh, would change if we'd leave the world of print for something more visual. And that caused me to think about the fact that Maybe the rise of 3D printing could be uh, one of the tools that will have a larger impact on us than we can now foresee. Probably not, but uh, it's fun to think about. You know, what if uh, somebody asked you what it's like to smoke DMT and you were able to pull out a 3D something or other from your backpack and show them what it's like? Now, wouldn't that be the cat's meow? (laughs) Oh no, is that an expression still being used? (laughs) The cat's meow. My guess is it's just another sign that my range of expressions is getting kind of (laughs) old. Anyway, I think you know what I mean. Now, from time to time I've mentioned my Flipboard magazines, particularly the one titled Psychedelic Salon. And while there are now over 2,000 articles that I've posted there, one of them is something that I hope you'll take a close look at. It's titled, What are the Benefits and Boiling Points of Cannabis Vaporization? And I'll link to it in today's program notes. It's uh, it's by Zoe Wilder and has some really excellent information that I suggest you take a close look at uh, in the event that you haven't yet begun vaporizing instead of uh, using a pipe or rolling a joint. In addition to uh, providing the vaporizing temperatures for some of the various components of cannabis, that article also has some really good information about oils and dabbing. But the part that really caught my eye was, and I quote, While some people claim the effect from smoking cannabis is stronger, nearly 90% of combusted cannabis contains no recognizable cannabinoid and terpene component at all. It's mostly unidentifiable, harsh-tasting tars that may even be carcinogenic depending on how your cannabis was grown, end quote. 
Now, I've been using a vaporizer for over 15 years now. And whenever one of my friends comes over and tells me that he or she doesn't get as high vaporizing as they do smoking, well, I just give them my vaporizer and tell them to take a couple of really deep hits. Almost without exception, they're really blown away with both the strength of the hit as well as the fact that they can actually taste the various flavors of the different strains. Now, as far as vaporizers go, I still think that the volcano is at the top of the list, but unfortunately, uh, (laughs) well, my volcano burned out several years ago. It's uh, really dormant. (laughs) But since then, I've gone through a number of different vaporizers, uh, each with their own good points and their bad points. But all in all, uh, in my opinion, you really can't beat the PAX-2. I've had the PAX-1, and uh, there were some issues with it, but the PAX-2, well... I think it'll pay for itself in a few months uh, just by getting a lot more out of a gram of grass than you get if you uh, just burn it. Now, let's see. Oh, yeah, another thing I'd like to mention here is that uh, I've now received uh, recordings of this year's Palenque Norte lectures from fellow saloner Frank Nuccio. And uh, the quality of this year's recordings is the best yet. So what I plan on doing in the months ahead is to play a series of Terrence McKenna talks one after the other, But when I get to the end of a workshop, I'll play a couple of the Planque Norte lectures before uh, picking up with another set of McKenna talks. So the first of these talks is going to be coming out in, well, in about two weeks. And uh, while our conversation about the Salon 2.0 is continuing with our team, we can still use uh, many, many more voices adding their thoughts as to how best to move ahead next year. And if you'd like to join in our conversations, just go to Psychedelic Salon 2.0, that's all one word, lowercase, Psychedelic Salon with the number 2, the number 0, dot signup, dot team, and uh, register and become involved. But right now, uh, since I'm still the benevolent dictator in charge of this lash-up, I'm going to exercise my privilege to play the music of one of my friends, Matt Lampkin. I first uh, met Matt about 17 years ago when I moved back out here to California. He was living just uh, two doors down from us, and, uh, well, he happens to be my stepchildren's half-brother. My parents would call him a shirt-tail relative. However, uh, even though there's a big difference in age between us, we quickly found that we were both big fans of Pink Floyd. And talking about rock music is how we became friends. Now, uh, Matt was only in high school at the time, and I can still remember the day when he called me over to see his first guitar. Well, since then, uh, Matt has never let go of his music. Years ago, I played a cut from uh, a soft pack album where Matt was the lead singer and lead guitar. Well, after doing a lot of touring, uh, Matt and his friends decided to move on to other pursuits. In Matt's case, that still involves music. He's uh, living in Mexico now, but comes up to L.A. for various odd jobs and to record from time to time. And uh, so for me, it was an interesting coincidence last Tuesday when Matt had stopped by his sister's house to spend the night before heading home. And uh, so he and I happened to be visiting uh, just not long after I'd posted the week's podcast in which I mentioned Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa, uh, which meant that those guys were still in the back of my mind. So I asked Matt what he thought of them, and, well, (laughs) as it turns out, he had just finished recording some new songs that he wrote, and he told me that in some of them he'd actually begun experimenting with progressive rock. 
Long story short, uh, I took that little coincidence as a clue that I should play one of Matt's tracks here in the salon this week. And, uh, well, maybe this will be the first time any of his new material is uh, widely heard. You can find all of his new material on his Bandcamp site, which you can find at Matt Lampkin, that's M-A-T-T-L-A-M-K-I-N dot bandcamp dot com. But uh, the one I'm going to play for you right now is titled Here I Am. And if you go to today's program notes at psychedelicsalon.com, you'll find a link to uh, both Matt's Bandcamp site as well as a link that provides the liner notes for these songs as if they'd been on a CD. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Give back to the